Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat with your host, Andy Storch. The show is dedicated to helping you develop the most important part of your organization, the people. If you are in HR or talent development, or you just want to learn how to get the best out of your people, then you are in the right place. This podcast is designed to give you what you need to be successful in the world of talent development. Now, here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and uh, this is going to be another in our series of best of episodes from the Talent Development Hot Seat, and I dug back into our archives to look at see which were our most downloaded, most popular episodes over the last two to three years. And of course, I already shared one with you last week with Lucretia Hall, the most downloaded episode. Our second most downloaded episode is, no surprise, my interview with Liz Weissman about turning your managers into multipliers. And of course, Liz is the author of the uber-successful best-selling book, Multipliers. It's one of my favorites. It's the most recommended book on this podcast. Uh, it's something I talk with a lot of L&D leaders and practitioners about all the time. Most of them are familiar with this book. Maybe you aren't, uh, and this is a good chance for you to go out and get the book and read it after you listen to this interview. Uh, I have had many listeners in the past tell me they went and got the book after this interview, and they really enjoyed it, and they were glad they did. Uh, I used to run a workshop based on this book called Multipliers. And so I'm intimately familiar with the book and the concepts. I'm very passionate about it. Uh, I'd love for all leaders to learn to become multipliers. And of course, if you're interested in that, you can always reach out to me and I'd be happy to tell you about it. Uh, I still run these workshops virtually from time to time, as well as some other things that I'm doing. Um, you can also find out more information about our Multipliers workshop by going to our podcast website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Uh, of course, this podcast is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group, which is an authorized seller of the Multipliers Workshop. So just go to talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. You can click around the Advantage website there. You can look at the leadership solutions and you'll find Multipliers there. There's also, if you go to the free resources section on the website, there is a free Multipliers learning journey you can go through as well if you want to learn more about Multipliers. So just go to talentdevelopmenthotseat.com and all of that stuff is available if you just click on the menus at the top. All right, without further ado, here is my interview with the great Liz Weissman. And actually, before I get to it, I want to say that this interview was one that I probably, over the last three years, I probably prepared more for this interview than I did 
any other interview because I'm such an admirer of Liz and because I love her book and her work and I wanted to come in and, and have a very thoughtful discussion and maybe ask her some questions that will allow her to promote the book and maybe some things she hasn't been asked before. Um, but the script kind of got thrown out near the beginning and we went down a road of real vulnerability and authenticity talking about her research in the book and what worked and what didn't and some of her findings. And a lot of what we talk about in this uh, episode is about accidental diminishers because most of our managers who are diminishers don't come to work every day planning on diminishing their people. It happens accidentally, right? And then what do we do about that? So a lot of this interview is about that. This is one of my favorite interviews of all time. I hope you enjoy it as well. Here's my interview with Liz Weissman. Hey, Liz, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. It's good to be here. When I when I heard this name, Andy, the talent development hot seat, it reminded me of my job at Oracle for about a dozen years. I felt like I was in the talent development hot seat, <laughs> and it's been a few years since I've been there, so I'm feeling the heat. Oh, nice. All right. Well, we're going to bring the heat today, and uh, I'm just so excited to have you on. Uh, we met briefly many years ago, as we talked about, and uh, I've been following your work and uh, a big fan of your book and your work for the last few years, and of course, I facilitate a simulation based on the book multipliers. And so when I reached out, I was uh, just so excited and grateful when you uh, said you would be willing to come on the show and share some of your wisdom. So let's start with a little bit of your background, if you wouldn't mind, for people that are not familiar with your story. Um, how did you get to where you are today? You know, it's funny. I went on a, like an absolute circular path to get here. And what is that quote? It's like something. And at the end of all our journey, we will come to where we began mm. and know it for the first time. It's a T.S. Eliot quote, but I feel like I have gone on this wonderful circular journey to get to do what I've always wanted to do, but to know it. And, you know, I came out of college and I wanted to go. I don't know what prompted this, but I wanted to teach management. I came out of business school and I actually approached a company, Zanger Miller. They were kind of the, one of the preeminent management training companies at the time. And I got on my resume and somehow I got to the president and I told him, I want to be one of your management trainers. And Ed Musselwhite uh, is his name. And he's like, you know, you seem great, but maybe, maybe you'll, you'll be a better management trainer if you get some management experience. Like, you know, he used some nice words. Um, yeah. But that's really what I wanted to do. But I could see that there was, well, first of all, I could see that there was a closed door, you know, for me on this opportunity. Mm. And, and so I took, for me, what was very much a consolation prize job. I went to work for Oracle, this, mm. you know, young Maverick software company. And I took a job in education. It was a job in talent development, actually. And I was doing training and I was actually teaching software programming and when I was actually still quite young, maybe 24, 25 years old, they said, hey, we need someone to manage training for the company. You know, and Oracle's growing, they're doubling every mm -hmm. year. And, and I actually didn't want the job. I liked teaching. I liked training, even though I was training on software, which honestly I was not enamored with. I really yeah. loved the learning process and I didn't want the management job. And there are actually other people in the group who wanted it. I didn't want it. But they offered it to me, and I remember Ed's word, like, you know, maybe you'll be a better trainer someday yeah. if you actually know what leadership and management is. And, right. and so I took that job, and I 
started up Oracle University and I led the company's, I guess what we would call the talent development or talent management function today. I think we called it like the global human resource development organization. So I spent the first 17 years of my career leading the talent management function. Hmm. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I left the corporate world and started my work that I do now really as a management researcher and author. And then here's a little bit of a funny slap in the face. So a couple of years ago, ATD, I think we all know who, you know, ATD is. They told me that they were giving me this award. It was like a really cool award. It's the the champion of talent award. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. And and I read about this award. And, you know, the list of people who've gotten this award is kind of a really impressive list of people. And, And they said, this is an award that we give out every year to someone outside of our industry who's made a big impact for talent. And so these are like, you know, um, Salman Khan started Khan Academy, Chris Anderson, who started up TED. Yeah. And then me. And I'm like, well, I appreciate the work, but do you know, not know I am not from outside of this industry. Right, like right, right. these are my people. Yeah. I am of this tribe. And I, I said, well, clearly this award is an indication that I'm a has-been in the oh. talent development world, like yeah. that I'm, I'm considered, I don't know, just like a thought leader outside of the industry. I feel very much in that, that industry. You feel like you're in the industry, but you know, for all intents and purposes, you're, you're on the outside selling to the inside like me, right? I suppose. Yeah. I just had never seen myself that way. Yeah. Well, because you spent so much, so much time on the inside, you know what it's like. You have the empathy, you have that experience, you have the connections. And my perspective would be that everything you've done throughout your career since then is to help the people on the inside that you, you still feel like you're there. Well, I do. And I think the experience has given me, you know, a lot of experience with what it's like to lead, to have to hire, to fire, to outsource, to move jobs overseas, to kill programs that people put their heart and soul into. Like I've had to do all that hard, gunky work, not just the glamorous fun part of running a learning function, but it's also given me a lot of empathy for people who organize conferences. And, you know, I do a lot of speaking Mm. and I I go to a lot of conferences and I don't know if I will ever forget what it's like to be on the inside and to be hiring a professor or an author or some luminary to come in and to put them on a stage and say, we're going to give you the opportunity to educate our management ranks. And, and what an incredible risk they take by giving some Yahoo a microphone. And I think about that all the time. Like, wow, people are really taking a risk. Some people are putting their career on the line when they invite you to come yeah. in yeah. and to teach or to speak. And, and so that's when I have a lot of empathy for mm. what that's like Right, because on the other side. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, and that's going to take you further, you know, in connecting with all the people that, that you know. And of course, you're really well connected and, and highly regarded and admired across talent development. Now, I've been running this podcast now for about eight months. I've interviewed over 50 talent leaders, and I always ask people. Whoa. To, well, that, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and I was going to say that I always ask people for a book recommendation. And one of the top books I always that I hear among all books is Multipliers by Liz Weissman. Probably that and Mindset by Carol Dweck are probably the top two mm-hmm. books that I hear recommended 
across the industry and that, you know, authors or speakers that people are familiar with or will say, oh, I heard Liz Weissman speak. It was amazing. I'm so excited that you're having her on the podcast. So it's just an honor to get you on here. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. And, you know, I've been a long admirer of Carol's work. You know, we, we live probably a couple miles from mm. each other. You know, I'm just right here in the shadows of Stanford. And yeah, I've, I've really learned a lot from her work. Yeah. Well, her work has had a, a big impact on me, not only in business, but especially as a parent as well. So when I read that book, Mindset Completely Shifted. And I know you mentioned it in your book, Multipliers, as well, and as sort of the, the conjunction where you know managers who are essentially diminishers have more of a fixed mindset. They believe intelligence is static and is not going to change and that they need to be the smartest person in the room versus the multiplier who have more of a growth mindset and believe that intelligence can change and that you can draw intelligence out of different people and even, you know, convince them to use more than they even knew they had. Yeah, I think, you know, um, Carol has told me her perspective on this. And it's funny, I, you know, I, Carol wrote the book, Multipliers, and I asked her what she thought and if she would be willing to write an endorsement. She's like, I love the book. And that was all she said. I'm like, well, tell me more. And I'm like, well, you know, what is it about it? And she's like, well, because essentially what you've done is explore like what happens in an organization when the leader of the team is operating with a growth mindset. And I had never set out to do that per se, but in essence, it really is kind of this premise, which is how do you lead when you really hold a deep belief, not only that you can learn and grow and figure things out because that's the essence of the mindset work. It's just what happens with students and people, adults, when they hold that belief. But what happens on a team when you actually think that the people you work with are smart and will figure it out? Mm-hmm. Like, what does it cause you to naturally do? You know, and, and you know, I, because I grew up in the talent world and in the training world, and I'm really, I am the daughter of a behavioralist. Mm. My mom was a special education teacher and principal. And I joke with my mom that if I ever write her life story, it will be called flashcards and M&Ms. Hmm. Yeah, because my mom like believed that everything could be solved with like behavioral conditioning. Like every yeah. problem that I've ever had with any of my kids, my mom's like, okay, Elizabeth, here's what you need to do. She didn't call me Liz, she calls me Elizabeth. Yeah. Elizabeth, here's what you need to do. You need to get a jar of M&Ms and a set of flashcards and on the flashcards, describe the behavior, you know, that you're looking for and then reinforce it with an M&M. And it always worked until the jar of M&Ms ran out. Yeah. But so I have this, this strong orientation that like, it's about behavior. It's about what leaders do. We train for skills and behavior. We skill up a workforce. And I think one of the things I've, I haven't replaced that understanding or orientation, but I've added to it is that if you don't get the mindsets right, there's no amount of behavioral training, of reinforcement, of tools, of what are now our electronic versions of flashcards, um, you know, all of these reinforcement systems and job aids, like none of that works if you're not operating from the right core belief set. And in many ways, that's far more powerful. So get the thinking right. And, you know, we, we sort of wiggle our way into the right behavior. Right. Yeah. That's not always true. Interesting. But over time, I think, like, even if someone is well-trained in multiplier ways of leading, but they're still operating under diminishing assumptions, you know what? They're going to find their way back to diminishing behavior. It's inevitable. Yeah. Like, the end of the quarter will come. 
a crisis will hit and they will snap right back to the things that they did based on those beliefs. And I think over time, you know, I mean, I don't think we just float into good behavior unintentionally, but if we keep our thinking right and square, I think over time, our behavior catches up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you talk in the book, of course, about the idea of accidental diminishers and that you know, most people don't come to work planning to diminish their people or to <laughs> be a bad manager, right? They're not, they're not that many nefarious managers out there who are trying to do evil. But there are a lot of managers who are doing it anyway because who are evil, <laughs> yeah, who are, <laughs> or just or just bad managers, right? And they're not realizing how much of an impact they have on their people who they want to do good work, right? The people want to do good work. And if I could even just read a quote from your your book that I think is sets all of this up, which is that people across cultures, industries, companies, etc., come to work every day hoping to be well utilized, not by being given more work but through the recognition that they are capable of contributing in significant ways and doing progressively more challenging work. People want to do good work and that there's a lot of people out there diminishing them, not on purpose, but I guess the big question is going to be, how do we help more managers stop doing that? Yeah. And you know, and even before we go there, I think the thing that really struck me was not only that most of the diminishing that's happening in our workplaces is coming from the accidental diminisher. Most people are completely unaware mm-hmm. of their diminishing impact. I think the thing that struck me and it still continues to blow my mind in some ways is that the crater that's created by the accidental diminisher tends to be as deep as the crater that's created by the tyrannical narcissistic mm-hmm. bully. Now, if someone is like a truly an intended diminisher, I was going to say a well-intended diminisher, meaning yeah. that their diminishing is... An intentional is diminisher. Yeah. yeah, an intentional diminisher. Like they created a crater that is not only deep in terms of the effect they have on people in their work, there is a collateral damage that's created in people's lives. I did a whole secondary round of research really trying to understand how people deal with diminishers. And when I, I think I surveyed about 200 people really trying to understand what happens when you are being diminished, I could see this toxic carryover into not just people's work lives and how they shut down, play it safe, pull back, all of this. It's self-doubt, it's anxiety, it's depression, it's pervasive. So the accidental diminisher doesn't necessarily have that same kind of integral effect across people's like whole life experience. Right. But they, they cause people to hold back and be underutilized to the same degree as the intentional diminisher yeah. or that hardened diminisher who's actually so busy absorbed in their own self. They don't have time to think about the people on their team. Yeah. So how do we help accidental diminishers? Well, I, a lot of it comes from just helping people see that, you know, human nature has it, that we judge other people based on their actions, but we judge ourselves on our intentions mm. and that there's this lost in translation process is that that your intentions as a leader don't come through your behavior Hmm. and and helping people see not only that other people can't see their intentions they can only see their actions you know unless they can somehow like divine it you know intuit this you know for the clairvoyant people on your staff that people can't see it but that also that there's something lost in translation Hmm. that things can go awry that you know, miscommunication and to see what they look like through the eyes of their employees. 
And I think one of the things that's striking is when people realize that sometimes the things they do with their most noble intentions end up having the biggest diminishing effect. Yeah. I don't know about you. I feel free to confess at any moment, but I'll tell you a few, like I find that I actually have my greatest diminishing impact, not when I'm frustrated or mad or stressed. Yeah. Because in some ways I've learned to um, regulate that. Like I have some basic emotional regulation. I don't necessarily yell at people when I'm, I'm stressed. But when I'm my most excited, hmm. most passionate, like when I am fired up about something, yeah, I'm buzzed. I'm like, Ooh, we can do this. We can do yeah. that. And what yeah. about this? And I, I tend to take over yeah. and I end up like a wet blanket on others sort of smothering the <laughs> enthusiasm of someone else because I'm excited. Interesting. I was going to say, uh, you know, a related note, if you look at the accidental diminishers that you have laid out in your book, there are a lot that I don't necessarily relate to. I'm, I guess I'm lucky in that regard. But the big one for me is definitely the optimist. I, uh, oh. I'm very optimistic, enthusiastic, energetic. My friends will all tell you that I bring energy to everything I do. But that means if any challenge comes up, I'm like, oh, we got this, no problem. And I have no sympathy for people that are struggling with things when, you know, I need to... No whiners allowed. Right, right. And I've gotten feedback from people who reported to me in the past, you don't really like understand the struggle we're going through. You just feel like everything can be done, no problem. Right, because, you know, the complainers, they're like, you're killing my vibe here. Right. Like, you're killing the feel-good energy and we don't tend to have sympathy for it. Yeah, this is one that I struggle with as well. And it just seems... I, mean, I read all the research on optimism. It seems like optimism should have this positive, hopeful effect on the team. And yeah. and also, if you look at the, you know, we know about the physiological benefits of optimism, sort of mm-hmm. seeing the bright side. We know that the higher you get in organizations, the more we see optimists in these roles. Yeah, I think because you need, in some ways, a healthy detachment from reality to actually even get up and go to work some days in senior management because you have to like see these possibilities that don't yet exist. You can't get mired in in reality, but yet it's actually deeply diminishing. Yeah. Well, I would think, especially in the technology world, but really anywhere, most CEOs kind of have to be optimists, right? I mean, they've got to put on the face, go out to the market and say, oh, we're definitely going to do these things. You know, I'm thinking of Apple with big launches and I used to do a lot of work with Salesforce. And I know Mark Benioff would get up on stage and say, hey, we've just created this product and everyone else is looking around and go, we didn't make that yet. But he's like optimistic that... In our minds, we did. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I used to work for Larry Ellison at Oracle and it was the same. People would say, Larry's always right. It's just a matter of timing. Like we we just haven't created it yet. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's understanding what our intentions look like from other people. Mm. Like how might this be received? Like my own optimism is what does it look like to other people? She doesn't appreciate the struggle. She doesn't understand how hard it is. Yeah. And so it's learning to see what it looks like. Essentially it's what the, the psychologists call perspective taking. And mm. if anyone's you know read this research, I know Dan Pink popularized some of it in his book, to sell as human. Yeah. It's not in his drive book, which is the one that probably most people are familiar with. It's in to sell as human. And he, ta- he talks about perspective taking, which is the ability to see things through the eyes of others and consider other people's experience. It's a form of empathy that it is shown to go down with power 
and authority. Meaning when we're the underdogs, when we're the new ones in the organization, when we're the employees, like it's natural for us to say, I wonder what this looks like for somebody else. Yeah. When we're in a low power position, but when we're in the power position, it's so easy for us to say, here's what it looks like for me. And I want to impose that, share that with others. And so in a lot of, of multiplying is about countering hierarchy. Mm. It's about breaking down the disconnects that come when people have hierarchical relationships with each other. Yeah. Well, speaking of the leaders and that, you know, as you rise into those senior ranks, senior positions, you know, in the book multipliers, you talk about how multipliers tend to get twice as much intelligence on average out of their people than diminishers do. And that ultimately multiplier leaders are the most successful both in developing their people and from a business perspective as well and getting results. And Yet some people can look and say, well, what about CEOs, leaders, famous leaders like Steve Jobs or even a Larry Ellison, who on the outside kind of look like major diminishers in the way that they've acted. And I think you even say- Perhaps on the inside too. Perhaps on the inside too. So how do you explain their success if they are such diminished? Are they anomalies or are they doing other things that we're not seeing to be multipliers? Mm, Wow. I think it's a complex story in there. And it's one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And let me share a few perspectives on this. Um, Let me go back to like my earliest quandary about this. So I get done with the book. Yeah. I feel good about the book. I feel like there's absolutely like a correlation between multiplier leadership and success of the team and the enterprise. And I haven't proven that the businesses do better, but there's a lot of things, a lot of indicators. A lot of empirical. Yeah. And So I share the book with a few people who I'm hoping will write an endorsement for the book. Um, Carol Dweck was one of them. And I I give the book to someone named John Dorff. He's a renowned venture capitalist. And, you know, he was at Kleiner Perkins, Coffin um, Buyers. And, and, you know, this is someone who has invested in and started Sun Microsystems, Amazon, Google, and the list just goes on and on. So I know John just well enough to ask him to read the book uh, yeah. and maybe consider an endorsement. I give it to him. He writes back, love the book. would love to write an endorsement. I'm thrilled. He sends me the endorsement. And it reads something to the effect of, what do all successful CEOs and CFOs have in common? They're multipliers. Blah, 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 blah. And I, I look at this and I panic. Now, I'm very grateful for his endorsement, but I'm looking at this going, that's not true. Yeah. That's not true. I live right here in the heart of Silicon Valley and I can drive up Highway 101 and down Highway 280 and I can point to companies that I am sure are are led by diminishing leaders. Yeah. So I can't put that on my book. Yeah. So I did what any reasonable author would do. I just edited right. this endorsement. And I'm like, okay, I got to make this kind of true. Right. True, true-ish enough. Like I, I wanted it to feel accurate, and it's and still his words, though not yours, right? I know, but I felt like perhaps it was misleading. Anyway, it, it gave me angst. Mm. It gave me angst because of the this tension that you just described is very real, and so I kind of massaged that endorsement. So I, I felt like you know what, that's probably that's accurate. Sent it back to him, and I know John well enough to ask for an endorsement. I don't know him well enough to be editing his endorsement. That's what I learned. So yeah. he, he wrote back to me and he said, you know, Liz, it's been my experience having taken a number of small founder led companies 
and grown them into large, successful enterprises is that the only ones that make it in the end are led by multipliers. Hmm. And then he said, my endorsement stands as is. Interesting. John. I'm like, he sees something that I don't see. Hmm. What is it that he doesn't see? And I think what he sees is that, you know, there, you might be able to start a company with genius, but in the end, you need leaders who are genius makers. You, you know, you get to the point where the organization is too complex for any one person to know. Now, there are probably some, some leaders who have such incredible levels of genius that they can afford to kind of underutilize the intelligence of others. Like, there are probably a few of those. You know, maybe Steve Jobs yeah. was one of these leaders, but there are not a lot of them. Right. And, and I, I do believe that there probably are some people who are so incredibly brilliant and insightful and kind of see around corners that their intellectual will can be imposed on an organization. But they're yeah, not a lot usually, of them. So if you're not Steve Jobs, like don't play the Steve Jobs card in how you lead. And there, there are times when organizations can draw more singularly on certain leaders and there are market conditions where like a strong headed leader does extremely well. Software is full of them. Like, you know, I come out of the software world. If you can go out there and get an install base fast and, and particularly if it's enterprise critical technology, the switching costs are so great that it ends up creating these kind of pseudo monopolistic environments where you don't see the effect of intelligence lost. Like in some ways, the water level so high, you don't see the rocks. And there's one other dynamic I would throw in there, and I'm, I'm sure, Andy, you've got thoughts on this as well, is that you do see this really interesting hybrid kind of profile in founder-led organizations, these founder-CEO types. And you mentioned Steve Jobs. We could go there. You know, Larry Ellison's one of my favorite. Little people are like, oh, Larry Ellison must be one of these diminishers in your book. Yeah. Not at all. Not for me. Yeah. For me, he was an incredible multiplier. And one of my colleagues at Oracle said, you know, with Larry, you know, who's known for being kind of strong-willed and mercurial, is they said, if he trusted you, there was no greater multiplier. Mm. And often what you see is these kind of leaders tend to have a a strong multiplier presence in a smaller sphere, kind of like in their inner circle. Right. Not that I was in Larry's inner circle, but that with people they know and trust, yep. they're like amazing leaders. Like, hey, you know what? Here's what I need you to do. I back you. You go figure this out. They're incredible challengers. But when it comes to a broad group of people where they don't know you, right. they don't necessarily hold those same assumptions. Or you get these mixed bags like Steve Jobs, who people could point to his behavior and say, oh, I see a lot of diminishing but if, if, they, if they have a good lieutenant, like Steve Jobs had Tim Cook, who was running operations and of course now is the CEO, who might have been more of a multiplier to the people and could, you know, take care of the masses where Steve had his trusted inner circle. He may have been, a, and, and I imagine the same thing is the same with Jeff Bezos, who some could say, oh, he's, you know, that way as well. And then, then it's a matter of opinion. And, you know, there have been plenty of articles about the toxic culture of Amazon and then the riot, everybody rose up and said, no, no, we love working here. Right? There's just different perspectives and, and the culture might fit different people as well. Absolutely. And I think what you just described is 
is what John Doerr was capturing, which is the only ones that make it in the end are led by multipliers. Mm. Now it could be that that CEO, that founder CEO type, that genius type evolves and changes. Right. That might be a Bill Gates story, Mm. but it could be that the way that they evolve is not that they themselves change their nature or their management style is they surround themselves with people who shore that up. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. Tim Cooks is very much a multiplier yep. in how he led. Um, I, I had just this incredible blessing to get to do a lot of coaching work for his executives as I was writing the book. And, and he's a brilliant example of someone who brings out the best in everyone. And, and actually just someone with a hard edge as well, not yep. just with this kind of gentlemanly charm and appreciation for others, but well, that was one of your surprising revelations in the book as well, is that multipliers do have a hard edge. A lot of them do, right? They do. And that's why some of these hard edge leaders look like diminishers, but they're hard edge multipliers. And, and often you get these hybrid profiles like a Steve Jobs who had these diminishing properties. Yeah, you know, he could micromanage you know, really well. And he had some tyrannical moments and was hot-headed. But now if you look at the the profile of these multiplayer leaders, like Steve was absolutely a talent magnet, as is Bezos. Like people would say, man, I'd work for him anytime, anywhere. Yeah. Steve was a challenger. You know, there's those stories of him like staring people down. Like if I just look at you long enough, you'll figure out that this ridiculous thing I'm asking you to do is humanly possible and it's possible for you. And I'm just going to keep staring at you until you decide you can do it. Like it's a real twisted, yeah. in some ways, a little bit of a dark approach to a challenger. Yeah. And so, like you said, a lot of them were talent magnets anyway, like people wanted to go work for them and probably liberators to some extent as well, right? I mean, they are driving people and giving them freedom once they convince them that they can go do these things to go out and create new products and, and build stuff. Yeah. And I think it's important to distinguish, like I had to separate these out, is that you know, it's not that like multipliers are good, nice people and diminishers are bad, evil people. Like one of the most fascinating things is to go into organizations where the the nice factor in a culture has had a deeply diminishing impact Mm. because people don't talk straight. People don't ask people to do hard things. Like they love people up. Oh, Liz, we appreciate you. We love you. Yeah. But people feel underutilized. Like nobody's asking me to do something hard. Nobody's letting me suffer. Like I get rescued 
too quickly or nobody's telling me the truth. Nobody's giving me the information I need to calibrate and to change and adjust. And so, you know, we see nice diminishers and we see some tough hombres in multiplier roles. Yeah, no doubt. Because multipliers, I mean, as you say in the book, when you talk about the characteristics of multipliers versus diminishers, and multipliers are challengers, right? They challenge people to do more than they think they're capable of. And diminishers can, you know, if they're not doing that, then they're not getting the most intelligence out of their people. Maybe they're just being nice and just letting them, agreeing with them or, you know, not really challenging them or wanting to rock the boat or, or you know, help them realize that they could be doing more. Yeah. And maybe this is too autobiographical in my own experience, but when I look at my multipliers, when I make my list of the people who really got the best work out of me, none of them niced their way into this. Mm. Most of them were people I were just a little bit afraid of. Mm. Not retribution, not what are they going to do to me? I never felt unsafe. I just would have done anything not to disappoint them. Yeah. But these were not cupcakes and kisses kinds of leaders. At least mine are, but maybe, maybe I am sick and twisted, you know. Yeah. And I'm not encouraging anyone to artificially adopt some tough, demanding style. Like if that's not you, like you're not pulling that off. You've got to be yourself, but you've also got to be willing to, to challenge people as well. Uh, so I want to ask you, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of my listeners who are in the talent development space have read your book or at least familiar with the work. And they might say, okay, this is great. How do I create more of a multiplier culture in my organization? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it starts with this accidental diminisher. You know, the path does not look like, gee, Here's diminishing behavior. Let's root that out. Here's multiplying behavior. Let's inculcate that. Let's educate people. Let's build those skills. Let's put the posters on the wall, so to speak. That is not the path. It's far more nuanced than that. It's going back to this question, Andy, you asked, and I feel like I got, I sidetracked myself frequently. It's about treating the accidental diminisher. Like what I have learned as an educator and as a researcher on this is the path of learning is the accidental diminisher path because very few people can live up to this like ideal of multiplier leader. All of us have our own diminishing tendencies and very few people really want to confront like, Oh, I'm a diminisher. Like, Oh, I'm going to sign up for the class for the, the diminishing managers. Most of us don't want to do that, but I have really not found a leader who isn't interested in exploring his or her own accidental diminisher tendencies. And boy, I wish I could claim that I had somehow planned this out. I had contrived this, conceived of it, like like that this was some clever way to pull people in. It wasn't. I just noticed that once it's accidental, the resistance is gone. And I've also learned, so it's helping people see their accidental diminisher tendencies and to either put in place quick workarounds Like, hey, if you're an idea guy. Thanks again for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find the show. And as always, you can find all of our episodes and tons of free resources on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Thank you again and take care.